Hello, everybody. Welcome to the sixth episode of the Manor Podcast. I'm your co-host, Roger Bodie, joined, as always, with my best friend and other co-host, Michael Hamilton. Michael, how's it hanging? Uh, I'm doing pretty well. I don't really know how to answer that. How are you? Oh, it's hanging a little to the left. Today, we're going to be discussing Uprising and its limited format. Michael and I got a chance to do a whole bunch of draft experience over the weekend. I think between the two of us, we did maybe six, seven drafts a piece, something like that. Yeah, we, uh, (laughs) yeah, at the 10K in Ohio after the first day, I got, we both got several drafts in and then I guess we didn't actually draft on Sunday, but we played the team sealed event. Right. The team sealed event was the other form of limited experience we got. It was super interesting. I don't know how relevant that format's going to be to the future of Flesh and Blood, but it was definitely interesting and gave us a better sense of overall of how the heroes play into each other. Since every round we were seeing how each one of the three heroes was performing three times against each one of the other heroes instead of just only seeing how they interact in our individual matches. So it was really informative, I thought. Yeah, I agree. So how are you feeling about the format? I think overall, I think the format is interesting. It might not be interesting in the long run once we figure things out and things settle out a little bit more. And I don't think it'll go down as one of the all-time best limited formats, but who knows? I could be wrong on that one. What are your initial thoughts? Yeah, I think there's a lot to unpack with the format. All three heroes play very different and have pretty different drafting priorities in terms of what they want, as well as like... There's not a lot of overlap in the cards, and the generics aren't particularly powerful for the most part. So it's very different from what we've experienced in the other draft formats, where I think you're kind of like encouraged to just like take powerful cards and potentially multiple characters and then just try to figure out where you're going to end up. Right. I would definitely agree. I think drafting is one of the hardest parts, and that's why one of the first things we're going to do, we're going to do a classic, we're going to do a pack one, pick one. I'm going to open up a fresh Uprising booster pack that I took with me from over the weekend. I'm going to open it up, and we're going to talk about what we would first pick from the pack. Does that sound good, Michael? Yeah, let's go for it. Okay. First up, in our pack, we have Blue Oasis Respite. So Oasis Respite is a generic instant. Prevent the next two damage in blue that would be dealt to a target hero by a source of your choice this turn. If they have less life than each other hero, they may gain one life. Cost one, and is a generic instant. This is a card that I would definitely not be looking to first pick. It's a blue that does not block, so it's pretty narrow. I think this card is fine as a sideboard card against Icelander because the fact that it doesn't block is not harmful when you're playing against Icelander and you want to increase your blue count, and this is a blue that you don't mind playing sometimes against Icelander. But outside of that, I think this card is pretty bad. Right, I would agree. So I'm going to put this into the mediocre pile for now. Next up, we have Yellow Scar for a Scar. So Scar for a Scar is making a comeback from Welcome to Wraith. In yellow, it is a zero-cost attack action with three power and two block, and it reads, when you play Scar for a Scar, if you have less life than an opposing hero, it gains go again. What are your thoughts on this card? Uh, it's very rare that I want to first pick a yellow, and Scar for a Scar isn't an overly impressive card, especially not a yellow, where it's zero for three with sometimes go again and only blocks for two. Uh, definitely not a card I'd be looking to first pick. Right. Once again, into the mediocre pile. 
Up next, we have our first Draconic card here. We have Red Inflame. Red Inflame costs zero. It's a Draconic attack action with one power and two block. It reads, when you attack with Inflame, if you played another red card this turn, you may return a Phoenix Flame from your graveyard to your hand. Go again. This card's pretty okay, but still not amazing, right? Yeah, I think this is another card that I'm usually not very happy to play, or even like even have in my deck, let alone pick early. It, it In Fi, you really need to have a second Phoenix Flame in your graveyard to really get the full effect out of this and Fi's ability. And the rate of a card for two damage with it and the Phoenix Flame isn't really worthwhile. It can be quite good if you have several cards that care about extending the chains. Like There are the Rupture Finishers, and there's also uh, a few Majestics that really pay you off for going really wide, but I wouldn't pick this very highly. Agreed. Next up, we have the first card that we can actually get a little bit excited here. We have Red Brother in Arms. So Brother in Arms is a two-cost attack action with six power and two block. But it reads, when you defend with Brother in Arms, you may pay a resource. If you do, it gains plus two defense. This seems like a very first pickable card. Yeah, the main reason that this card is quite good is because it has six power in a format where one third of the heroes are very vulnerable to cards with six power because of the Phantasm keyword. I think this is a card that's like not even bad to play in your deck outside of matchups where you're against Dromai, and it's extremely good against Dromai, so I think I would be reasonably happy to first pick this card. Right, it's a red card, and even in decks like Icelander, who don't even care about the effect in other matchups, and don't even care about the six power effect in other matchups, like against Fire, the mirror. I guess in the mirror is not particularly good, but against Fi, when she has the extra resources laying around, it's still a four block for one card. So overall, I think it's a very solid pick and going to be in the lead right now for our first pick. Definitely. So next we have our first rare, and it is. Yellow Mounting Anger. So it costs one resource. It's a Draconic Ninja attack action with three power and two block. When Mounting Anger hits, you may banish an attack action card from your hand with cost less than the number of Draconic Chain Links you control. If you do, it gains plus one power and you may play it this turn. Go again. That's super exciting, right? So at yellow, this card's not very exciting. A one for three with go again isn't a particularly good rate. You're really looking for a one for four or a zero for three. At red, this card becomes a 1 for 4 with go again, and the on hit is frequently worth an extra damage when you banish any card that you're going to play this turn. But that said, at yellow, I don't think it's anywhere near red brother in arms. Right, I would agree. So we're going to put this back into the mediocre pile with the other picks, and brother in the arms keeps its lead. But we'll see how long it keeps that lead, because our next card is a majestic. It's very powerful. It's a red majestic. It is called Vipox. It costs 0 it's a generic attack action with one power and three block. When Vipox hits a hero, they lose life equal to the number of cards in their hand. I was mostly kidding when I said this card's very powerful. I don't think this card's very good at all. Yeah, I agree. I don't think it's a card you want to put in your deck very often. It is a little bit more interesting in this format, given that there's no equipment that outright blocks it. There's no equipment in the set that just can block off the combat chain. Although there is a lot of quell effects floating around in the format that any one resource can just completely mitigate this effect of this card. And if this card ever was going to be threatening, it's super easily blockable. So uh, into the mediocre pile it goes. Next up, we have our first piece of equipment. We have Quelling Robe, which is a generic equipment chest with Quell 1. 
I think that the quality equipment is all reasonable and I really like filling out your equipment slots. That said, I think it's still weaker than Red Brother in Arms and I'd even consider first picking the yellow mounting anger above it. Uh, the non-generic chess pieces, the class-specific ones, the with Isolator, you really want to have Spellfire, Cloak, and with both the Draconic Heroes, you'd rather have the Sash of Sandakai. So because of that, I wouldn't value this card extremely highly, but definitely in pack two or pack three, if you haven't picked up a chess piece, this is moving quite moving up reasonably in my pick order. Yeah, definitely not a pack one pick one card. I would say if you're pack three and you still don't have a chess piece, you can consider this card maybe a little bit more highly, but definitely not a card you want to pack one pick one. Next up, we have our foil rare, which is unfortunately blue Findel's Fighting Spirit. Findel's Fighting Spirit is a three cost generic attack, attack, generic action attack with five power and two block, and it reads when you attack or defend with Findel's Fighting Spirit, if you have less life than an opposing hero, gain one life. So the reason why I was so disappointed about this being blue is because in red and particularly yellow, it is. It goes up to six power, which means it's a popping effect for Phantasm, whereas at blue, it is not a popping effect. That being said, if you really needed a resource card, you could definitely do worse than Find All's Fighting Spirit, but it's not really where you want to be pack one, pick one, I don't think. Yeah, I agree. It's a blue that kind of blocks for between two and three. It blocks for two and sometimes gains you that life, so that's nice, but without it being a popper, it's just not a card to be super excited about. Agreed. Next up, we're going to start getting into our class-specific cards. So we have Blue Brain Freeze. Brain Freeze is zero-cost elemental wizard action with three block. Ice Fusion. Target opponent reveals their hand. If Brain Freeze was fused, put an action card with cost zero from their hand on top of their deck. So this is a blue elemental wizard action, so Icelander can't play this from Arsenal. So what do you think about Brain Freeze, Michael? Brain Freeze is a blue block three, which is exactly... what Icelander is looking for to round out her deck. It's also fine to play it sometimes, both from hand and from arsenal. Your opponents can sometimes pitch their whatever this would take, and then it won't get a card. So you do have to be kind of careful about how you use this, especially on their turn, when they have a chance to do something before you get to look at their hand. But it's a card that I almost always included in my Icelander deck, just because you're really looking for blues and it also blocks for three, and it's castable sometimes, so it's a solid pick. Not something I'm looking to first pick, though. Right. Ultimately, this is more of a role player card once you're more thinking about going into the Icelander route, whereas pack one, pick one, it's not something that screams at you to go Icelander, go Icelander. It's just a fine role player. So we'll, once again, we're sticking with Brother in Arms, and we'll see if anything can catch up in the la- these last few picks. Next up, we have Yellow Dust Runner Outlaw. It's a... Uh, one cost, and in yellow it has three power, two block. Just reads go again for a Draconic Ninja action attack. Once again, meh. Yeah, again, really not looking to first pick any yellows. If this was in red, then it would probably be the second best card in the pack, but in yellow it's not really even a consideration. Moving on, we have blue Rake the Embers, which is a one cost Draconic Illusionist action with two block. In blue, it reads, create an ash token, then transform up to one ash you control into an aether ash wing go again. What do you think? I'm really not sure how good this card is. The fact that it makes an ash is kind of nice, since that's something that Dromai struggles for. And it's primarily going to be used as a resource card, and you can play it sometimes. 
I think it's a card that I wouldn't be too unhappy to include in my deck, but again, definitely not anywhere near our first pickable card. Agreed. This pack really wants us to go Icelander, though, Michael, because next up we have Blue Aether Hail. Aether Hail is a one-cost Ice Wizard action with three block, and it reads, deal two arcane damage on any target. So once again, this is a blue non-attack action that we can play from Arsenal, and it's ice. Yeah, Aether Hail is actually the best of the ice cards, in my opinion. The fact that it costs one just lines up so nicely with the Waning Moon, and you're extremely happy to have the blue because... First, you just want a critical mass of blues in Icelander. This is one of the best ice cards. It blocks for three. And like I said earlier, the combination of costing one combines nicely with your Waning Moon, where you can play this from Arsenal and activate Waning Moon off a single blue pitch for a total of five arcane damage. This card's a very high priority pick in Icelander. And if you are already in Icelander, like say in pack two or pack three, I think you could reasonably take this over brother in arms but in a pack one i really value the flexibility of staying open with the brother in arms pick completely agree couldn't have said it better myself so down to our last two cards we have our first red draconic ninja action but it's probably the weakest of them all it's red rebellious rush which is a two cost five power draconic ninja action attack with two block and also just reads go again yeah this card's fine being red is good but the biggest problem with this card is that you have to pitch multiple resource cards to attack with this and the weapon in the same turn. It can be quite good to have one of these in your deck and you use it on your sash turn, where you play this and then you use the sash to swing the weapon and then you play a zero cost thing and get your Phoenix Lane back and do all those five things. But not a card that I'm, again, <laughs> looking, not a card I'm looking to first pick. Yep, yep. Last but not least, we have another very solid class card in red. We have Dunebreaker Senapai in red. Dunebreaker Senapai is a Traconic Illusionist attack action with five power and three block. It reads Phantasm, so when it's blocked by that card with six or more power, it's destroyed and the combat machine is closed. When, But when Dunebreaker Senapai is destroyed, create an Ash token, and it has go again. So this is a very, very strong card. I shouldn't say. So this is a great role player in Dromai and exactly what she wants to be doing. Any thoughts about taking this perspective? Yeah, I think I value this in Dromai around where I value the Blue Aether Hail in Icelander, so quite highly when you're already in Dromai. And if you were in Dromai, say this was pack two or pack three, I think it would also be reasonable to take this over Brother in Arms. But again, valuing the flexibility of a powerful card that you can play in any character, I would still be leaning Brother in Arms. I'm still leaning towards Brother in Arms over this card, even though it is very premium in a draw my deck. Completely agreed. So congratulations, Red Brother in Arms. You are this pack's pick one. Please let us know if you disagree with our assessment, though, in the comments. We'd love to hear from you. And it just goes to show how powerful some of these class cards are that they can even be considered over a strong generic card like Brother in Arms. And I think we'll talk about that more as we discuss the finer nuances of this set. So where do you want to start first, Michael? We kind of went through a pick one, pack one, but I think we should talk about overall our strategies when navigating a draft. We kind of demonstrated a lot through the pack as we discussed it, that we really value staying open and flexible, seeing where the rest of the table is at and what the draft signals are before you commit to a particular class or hero. So for instance, if you get past 
after two or three picks, a very strong fly card, like a red Ronin Renegade, so the zero for three go again. That's one of his best combat starters. Or even something like a Lava Bane Loyalty, which doesn't necessarily start the combat chain, but is also a really strong role player on the deck. That's going to be a signal that five is going to be open. And you can apply that to all the other classes for their staple cards as well. Yeah, that makes sense. I think overall my strategy going into drafts, there aren't gonna be there aren't that many strong generics. Like Brother in Arms and Fiendel's Fighting Spirit are both very good because they're poppers and you're happy to play them anywhere. But outside of that, there aren't really that many strong generics. So if that wasn't in the pack, I would be pretty happy to take either the Aether Hail or Dunebreaker Senna Pie. I would be pretty happy to start with one of those. And let's say I started with the Aether Hail and then I got past Red Dunebreaker Senna Pie and another pretty reasonable Icelander card. I'd probably just take the Dunebreaker Senna Pie and try to just take the strongest cards I see for the first few picks and then try to find the open lane. Right. I think the only other generic card at common that I would consider pack one pick one is blue sift or red sift. Probably not the yellow, but sift. I think has been, I think Sift is a lot better than it looks at paper. Just the ability to fix your hands via block three and a resource card where it's needed. Um, I think this card is a perfectly solid role player and will probably make you cut no matter which of the three heroes you wind up in ultimately. I haven't actually played Sift in a deck and I also haven't played against it. It doesn't read very strong, but I understand what you're saying about it being flexible, being a resource. I particularly liked it when I was playing Dromai, just because in red, it allowed me to fix my all red hand. And obviously being a red non-attack action card, playing that gave all my dragons go again for the turn. So that ability to fix my hand, be the red go again for Dromai, and ultimately it would have just been a three block had I needed it for that resource, I think checks all the boxes for being open and flexible in a draft. That being said, I don't think it's by far and away the best card you could be taking, uh, pack one, pick one, but I think it's definitely very solid. Would you be taking it like at the same level as Brother in Arms and Fiendel's Fighting Spirit? Possibly. I think we'll have to see how the format shakes out as a whole, but right now it's a card that I'm very high on at least. Then I guess moving on to overall draft strategy, I think one of the things I'm struggling with right now in this format is how the hell anybody even winds up in Icelander. Just because if you're going with the strategy of staying open and flexible so that you can Make sure that you're getting the right hero based on what people are picking around you. If you commit to Icelander and there are three Icelanders at the table, most likely you're just going to have an atrocious deck. And once you start getting into picks three, four, five, it becomes a lot more appealing to pick the generic Draconic cards over the Ice cards because the Draconic cards can be played in either Phi or Dromai, whereas obviously the Ice cards can only be played in Icelander. And specifically, she's looking for the blue ice cards most of all. She doesn't even necessarily want 100% all of the ice cards in the set. So that's kind of what makes drafting Icelander particularly tricky in my mind. Yeah, I agree. The one time that I've drafted Icelander pretty successfully, I feel like it was there was a very strong signal that Icelander was open. And towards the end of pack one, I was seeing several wizard and ice cards in every pack at the end. So I think there ended up being only one Icelander drafter at the table when I moved in. And then at the end of the draft, there were two counting me. So that was the time that it was like clear the Icelander was open and I moved into Icelander and my deck ended up being very powerful. Right. So, so once again, though, 
you didn't decide to move into Icelander then until almost the end of pack one. And then from there, once you recognize that nobody else at the table was interested in playing Icelander, that's how you fell into it, which which seems a bit awkward to me because usually there's a reason why people are avoiding a particular hero. I guess Icelander is a bit more complicated in the early weeks than either Fi or Dromai, but I still think she has some pretty significant weaknesses even in the strategy when you pull her off successfully, but we can also talk about that more when we talk about the three heroes. Yeah, overall, I would think Icelander is probably the weakest in draft. And I think part of that is that when you're picking cards that are good in Icelander, they're not good in Fi or Dromai for the most part. And a lot of the time there is overlap between what you're looking for in Fi and what you're looking for in Dromai out of your generics and your Draconic cards. By saying open, I also mean like you can first pick a strong Icelander card or first pick a strong Dromai card, then second pick a strong card of another character then third pick a strong card of another character and then just like at the end of pack or the end of pick six you could have two strong cards for each character and i think that is a reasonable start to a draft and then kind of seeing what's coming around at that point that makes sense i'm just always worried about not having playables in this format if in later packs your table switches on you and you wind up not getting some of the critical elements of your deck that you need there have been one or two drafts now where i was really pushing that 30th card to be bottom of the barrel cards like blue trade-in or having to play way more yellows in my Icelander deck than I would have liked otherwise. So that's also something you have to be cognizant of and definitely it's worth reviewing at the end of pack one. Yeah, it's definitely a real concern. And I think, well, I guess we'll get more into this when we get to Icelander. I think with Icelander, you can't move in in pack two if you haven't already picked up a decent amount. With the other two heroes, them having some overlap and also getting access to Phoenix Slams makes it a lot easier to make the number of playables you need. But Icelander, you just need so many cards and also a critical mass of blues. Okay, so instead of dancing around this Icelander topic, let's just dig into Icelander and Replaws then. All right. So I'll start because I think I'm much lower on Icelander than you at the moment. And that's mostly because, I guess also going at a higher level, Tempo is a really weird thing in Flesh and Blood, where most of the time in Flesh and Blood, you're just looking to play your turns as efficiently as possible, maximizing your cards in your hand that you're capable of playing, and figuring out what's the highest rate of offense, and then what's their highest rate of defense, and seeing if you want to find a middle ground if your opponent's doing something particularly threatening that turn. So that's the heart of Flesh and Blood. So when you're playing Tempo, you're inherently deviating from that core strategy and saying, well... My hand might not be able to push as much damage back to the opposing hero, but I'm going to count on after I do my thing and I disrupt them that they won't be able to push as much damage back at me the following turn, and then I'll be able to start having higher rates of damage through my disruption. And there are a lot of instances in Icelander, particularly in Limited, where heroes are perfectly capable of playing through one to two Frostbites, which is what she's going to be making most of the time. So if her disruption isn't actually causing, well, her opponents to be disruptive, if you look at her damage rates, they're obviously far lower than the rates of Dromai and Fi. So it just creates this awkward gameplay situation in my experience so far. Yeah, I think Icelander's biggest strength is the fact that she can make your opponent's hands that are awkward even more awkward so if you draw an all red hand and then get a frostbite then that just like can destroy your entire turn and then on top of that your blue heavy hands or your hands that aren't going to have an effective way to play out all your cards 
you can't just block against Icelander like you can against other heroes. If you're playing against Vi and you draw a bad hand, at least you can just block with your hand. But Icelander takes that away by dealing arcane damage, which those the combination of your bad hands being worse. And sometimes a Frostbite will mess with a hand that would otherwise be quite good. That's where she gets a lot of her value from. Because like you said, her damage is below rate for the most part, outside of a couple cards, which we'll get to. Her damage is for the most part below rate and relies heavily on her disruption and her evasion to gain an advantage. Right. And I think the biggest moment for me that really lowered my opinion on Icelander was it seems to be pretty common consensus right now that Phi is capable of fatiguing Icelander if Phi has a good amount of arcane barrier and a lot of blues. So, and that's because ultimately at the end of the game, once Icelander runs out of playable threatening cards, her weapon doesn't function on its own, whereas Phi's does, and he'll be able to push damage by pitching his cards for the rest of the game, and Icelander will just be stuck there with a bunch of mopey blue do-nothing sometimes. So in my mind, at the beginning of the format, Icelander was supposed to be the counter to Phi, Phi was supposed to be the counter to Dromai, and Dromai was supposed to be the counter to Icelander. And that's because Phi is able to have these go-wide combat chains and has a lot of just one-powered attacks, as we saw in our pack one pick one with a card like Uprising and the Phoenix Flames, those are perfect cards that have value then outside of their ability to just push that one point of damage because they are perfectly capable of pinging off in either Ashwing or getting that chip damage into other dragons. So that's why at a high level, I expected Phi to be the counter to Dromai. And then obviously if we're looking to Dromai countering Icelander, that's supposed to be because all of the Aether Ashwings have Arcane Barrier built in right on top of them. It's really interesting to me that Phi also has this really interesting strategy into Icelander, whereas I don't really see where Icelander's great matchup that she's hoping to sit across from every time across the table in this current draft situation at the moment. I just don't think that there really is that rock, paper, scissors of the metagame. I think Icelander's fine into Drobi. The main reason being that if she has a blue card in Arsenal, that when a dragon attacks, she can just use that blue damage dealing card to kill the dragon and it functions similar to a popper where it just ends the dromai's turn and that can give icelander a lot of playback icelander definitely is vulnerable to oasis respite and other forms of life gain and damage prevention where your goal is just playing a long game against her but she's not that likely to fatigue out unless she's just blocking very very heavily and it's just something that she needs to be very aware of during the course of a game, that if she just blocks for too long, even if she gets a moment to turn the corner, she might just run out of damage. Right. And then last bit of my Icelander hate, and then we can move on. I also think she has the weakest equipment suite out of the three heroes in the game. I guess the exception would be if you're playing the Icelander mirror and you're the one with the Alubion Constellus. That's probably the biggest blowout that you can sit down from the start of the game at the moment. But as far as at the common level, her headpiece, the glacial horns, or her arm piece, Condor de Frost, both are pretty narrow in their application, at least when you're using them. Condor de Frostburn at least has the quell to at least be a defensive resource there. But really, the horns and the conduit clearly have the synergy together. But when your opponent doesn't have that arsenal or is able to mitigate the damage from the arcane spell you're playing with the Conduit of Frostburn, they have pretty significant downsides to them. Yeah, I learned uh, an interesting interaction with the Conduit of Frostburn, where if you activate it and then play a card that freezes their arsenal, 
when it does damage, like Icebind, for example, then the Conduit of Frostburn will still trigger off the Icebind and destroy that Arsenal card. So that makes it less reliant on the Glacial Horns to be good. But I think having Glacial Horns instead of having Boots is very rough for Icelander, and I agree that she has the weakest of the equipment, mostly because the generic hat, the token hat, Helios Miter, is quite good, especially when you want to go second most of the time in this format, and having that to help you filter even going second is very nice, and also it negates any advantage Icelander would gain from going first with that arcane damage. Having such a powerful headpiece that everyone gets access to without using a pick on it means that taking Glacial Horns feels pretty bad, and if Glacial Horns had the same effect on a boots or a footwear, I think that would definitely help Icelander quite a bit. I definitely agree. But it's not the world we live in, and that's why I'm the most apprehensive to play Icelander in the draft. That's not to say I'm hard against it, and if it and if I open the right rares or majestics, and I'm sitting at the right seat for it, it's definitely a hero that I am open to playing and will want to know how to play successfully. It's just the least favorite option out of the three heroes for me to want to draft in this format at the moment. Yeah, touching on the rares and majestics, I. I... I also think Icelander has the weakest of the rares and majestics. I think the best Icelander decks are mostly built around commons like Aether Icebane and Aether Hail. Out of the majestics, Frost Hex isn't particularly impressive. It's just a blue ice block three that's probably worse than most of the ice attacks. The only one that I'm really excited about is Insidious Chill. Insidious Chill is a blowout for sure. It is one of the ways that Icelander can just always ensure she's keeping that tempo because it has that repeatable effect of forcing your opponent to either pitch and pay two resources or discard a card. And having that recurring ability for three fuses is very strong. I think the other ice card, though, that I would also be very interested in is Freezing Point. Three for five arcane damage is not the best rate in the world, but it is still quite a lot of arcane damage. But the ability to also have that Frost Hex of turning your Frostbites into arcane damage on top of their Disruptive is on top of their disruption, I think is very strong. It's still not a card that I think is as strong as some of the other Majestic options in this set, but is a very strong pull to Icelander for me if I were to see it in a pack. Yeah, unfortunately, there aren't a lot of ways to give your opponents Frostbites and then play that Freezing Point. The only one that really works is Eisenhower Weathervane, which is the one that says the next time you ice use this turn, create X Frostbites tokens under target hero's control. Oh, I guess to clarify then, so how does the trigger from Eisenhower Weathervane work with... So you play Eisenhower Weathervane, and then you play Freezing Point, fusing it. Freezing Point will go on the chain, and then the triggered ability from Eisenhower Weathervane will go above it because you fuse as part of the cost for a Freezing Point. So Eisenhower Weathervane's effect of giving them four Frostbites will resolve before Freezing Point actually resolves. Okay, that's what I thought. I just want to make sure. So... I also think Hypothermia is quite strong alongside of Insidious Chill as well. Sure, it's only that one-time effect, but there are quite a few attacks that don't naturally have Go Again in 5. Cards like Blaze Headlong don't have Go Again until you played another red card this turn, and there's a lot of cards like that effect. So it's solid against Phi. It gives them the Frostbite when you play it. It costs zero. And against Dromai, then, none of her dragons can gain go again for the turn that it's in play as well so it's a very solid way to gain tempo in icelander yeah that makes sense it costs zero also so it's pretty easy to just play out of your arsenal 
Moving on, though, let's talk about the hero that I did change my mind on, where I was at first very low on Dromai, but then having played Dromai in our Team Sealed event and seeing it in action against me over the course of the weekend, I definitely think this hero is very strong and I really appreciate its ability to generate tempo through its dragons and close games with its really strong cards like Ember Moss and Apai. So what are your initial thoughts on Dromai overall, Michael? Yeah, Dromai seems like the trickiest of the three heroes to build correctly, similar to how I feel about her in Constructed. Though I think Icelander is pretty complicated and constructed also, though she's a lot she's simplified quite a bit in this limited format. I don't think Dromai is really simplified that much in the limited format. You still need the right combination of resources and red go again actions and then cards that make your dragons and ways to make ashes. So Dromai is pretty interesting and I think probably the toughest hero to the draft of the three. The good thing about Dromai is if you don't have the red go again actions to give your dragons go again throughout the course of the turn from your draft pool, she can just add three Phoenix Flames to her deck in order to help facilitate that. Sure, they don't block and it's not the best thing in there. It's not the best thing for her necessarily, but it is at least an option for her where there are no free cards Icelander gets to add to her deck if her draft it doesn't end up where she wants to be at least. Yeah, that makes sense. Additionally, that means that cards like Burn Away, so Burn Away is a, just a red draconic action where as an additional cost of play Burn Away, you may banish a Phoenix Flame from your graveyard. When you do, Burn Away gains plus two and go again. This effect becomes a lot stronger in Dromai because she has no inherent ways of recurring the Phoenix Flame from her graveyard like Five. so the cost of having to banish one from her graveyard is nowhere near as impactful as it is for a hero like Fi. And then it also makes cards like Flame Call Awakening or Inflame better in her as well because instead of playing that Phoenix Flame to get a longer combat chain necessarily that turn, she's pretty happy to just arsenal that phoenix flame in order to facilitate her dragon go against for the following turn or if she wants to generate ash being able to tutor it with flame call awakening or in flame is also something she is interested in so i think those cards are pretty mopey in phi a lot of the time well flame call awakening is always good to tutor for uh phoenix flame when you have it but particularly burn away in, in flame i think are quite a bit better in dromai than they are in phi that makes a lot of sense the way that Dromai utilizes the Phoenix Flames as just a weak red attack with Go Again, and then also a red that you can pitch to create an Ash and use as a resource that you can tutor for, is something that's really interesting. And I haven't, I haven't had as much opportunity to play Dromai as you have from the Team Sealed, and something that I hadn't fully appreciated until you just talked about it now. Right, and I was just thinking about this today, you know, in my real life, but I remember. In previous episodes, you've brought up the point that pitching a red card is not efficient because obviously you're only getting the one resource out of it and it's there are better cards you can be pitching, obviously in yellows and blues, to get more resources out of it. But in Dromai, a lot of her cards cost zero or one. So being able to just pitch a red card for a one card cost go again attack like Dunebreaker Senapai is still reasonably efficient because it can lead to turns where you block with a card, uh, pitch a red, get your ash token, attack with Dune Break, Breaker Senapai, attack with your other dragons on the battlefield, and then arsenal your last card. And you still wind up having a reasonably 
and you still wind up having an efficient turn off of pitching that red because of because she doesn't actually need that many resources over the course of her turn most of the time. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And in limited, it's it can be quite troublesome to generate those ashes if you aren't pitching the red. And since decks are inherently just going to have weaker curves, I guess it's more acceptable to need to pitch a red and have that way as your main way of creating ash. Right. And even if we look to a card like Ember Moss in a pie, this was a card that I didn't think would be that impactful until I started realizing, oh, my opponent's a 12. I just need to attack them with my Dunebreaker Senapai yellow into Ember Moss Senapai after pitching a blue, and I'm presenting lethal. Two for eight damage is just a beating and allows you to swing the tempo in matchups seemingly out of nowhere with just a single card. It is also not the worst thing in the world to pitch two reds in order to enable this card. Pitch two reds, attack with this, arsenal your last card, because then you're generating two pieces of ash in a turn. It's just a card that I think looked pretty innocuous, and the more I played with it, the more I was impressed with the card. Yeah, I agree. The card's really powerful, and there really are not a lot of poppers in this format. We were talking about taking Brother in Arms in our pack one, pick one, and that's one other thing that we didn't mention for why it's so strong, is just there really aren't a lot of poppers in this format. You're never going to have as many poppers as you want, even if you're taking them very highly. So that's makes these big phantasm attacks reasonably better than you would expect them to be after playing prism and monarch right i think on average most decks will have one and maybe two and that's also not considering the fact of the times where you want to be attacking with these cards or it just doesn't line up to or droma is able to effectively play around the popping effect when you actually have it so poppers are definitely in a really interesting and unique spot in this format as opposed to monarch where they were just a little bit more straightforward to have in your deck so when drafting how do you end up in a dromai deck how are you what kind of cards are really signals that you should be going into dromai well obviously red cards in her class are going to be strong pools cards like red skittering sands red skittering sands is a draconic illusionist of action for zero, that reads Stritch form, target Ash you control into an Aether Ashwing, it gains plus three power until the end of turn. This was also a card I was pretty low on at first. I just didn't think transforming an Aether Ashwing and just getting that bonus power for one turn would be all that impactful. But if you recontextualize it in your mind a little, well, I guess when I recontextualized it, I realized it's just like any other zero from four go again in red, but also has the upside of leaving behind this Aether Ashwing. Yes, you have to have the Ash to begin with before you play this card, but that effect is actually pretty strong and a good way for her to push, you know, this four power go again attack in a turn. Additionally, you want cards like Sweeping Blow Red in order to create the Ash tokens. So Sweeping Blow Red is just the three power, one cost, Draconic Illusionist attack that says when you attack with Sweeping Blow, create an Ash token, go again. And then the last common card I'm really impressed with is Rake the Embers, which is a draconic illusionist action that blocks for two and at red it says create an ash token then transform up to three ash you control into either ash wings go again so the fact that this generates the ash so you only need to have two ash tokens in play in order to create all three aether ash wings when this card resolves is very strong and then you just immediately have well three aether ash wings to start attacking with after you play the red version of this that being said the yellows aren't particularly strong obviously in any of these but i think the centipies 
either Doombreaker Centipi or Ember Mouse Centipies in yellow are fine cards to have in your deck. Doombreaker Centipi because it just naturally has go again, and Ember Mouse Centipi because it's a two for seven and is usually how you're ending your turn most of the time, so it doesn't need to give go again. And even in red, since it doesn't have go again, can't enable your dragons to attack anyways. I also quite like that card in blue as well. Actually, I take that back. I just like Ember Mouse Centipi quite a bit now. <laughs> but anyways, and then... Second, obviously, there are the opportunities when you just open a dragon in your pack, and you're like, oh, wow, look, I have an awesome dragon. While some dragons are definitely stronger than others in this format, I think I'm impressed, or I think I've been impressed and respected every single one of these on the battlefield way more than I thought I would. I think the one that wound up being, I guess, quite literally the biggest beating out of all of them was this was Vin Sirakai, that six-power dragon that when it hits it deals an additional three arcane damage to a hero. If there's no popper for this and it's not killed before it attacks, this threatens so much damage out of nowhere. And I think you are on the receiving end of this uh, over the course of our team sealed, Michael. Yeah, I was playing Icelander into this and I cast my spell from arsenal to give my damaging spell from arsenal to give my opponent a frostbite and then they just pitched a blue use their sash and played this and i could not block it so i just took nine damage yeah i was not happy to be on your team at that point but i definitely learned to respect this card a lot more than i did at first like you said though it is vulnerable that if you did have that card in your arsenal and it just got pinged while it was attacking it obviously would have been nowhere near as good, but finding the right spots for it. And in, and, and in the non-Icelander matchups, obviously that's not something you have to worry about, so it's also very impressive there. Like you said with the dragons, I think all of them are quite good, but I do think there are some that are probably better than the rest, although they are all good. I think Necria just being huge and also generating additional ashes is very, very strong. It attacks for four, and... Each time it deals damage or takes damage, you get ash out of it. That's just very valuable, I think. And then Chromai and Miragi both leave you in a spot where when they attack, if they get popped, your turn doesn't end. And I think that's also very valuable. Yeah, I agree. And then I think the weakest dragons are Invoke Thermai um, when you're not playing against an Icelander. Obviously, against Icelander, this card's a beating because it stops your opponents from playing cards or activating abilities on your turn. But when you're playing the Mirror or against Phi, this card's really not impactful. It's just a 3 for 4 dragon, which is fine. And then Uvia wound up being a little bit worse than I thought it would be. Yes, it can generate more Aether Ashwings for you, but overall, I find that the generating of the Aether Ashwings isn't really the issue for Dromai when it's playing its game. It's generating the Ash Tokens, so this just helps you do the game plan that your deck's already naturally pretty good at while not helping you in the game plan that your deck needs help with. So those are, I think, the two weakest dragons overall. That makes a lot of sense. And then, like I said before, when I was talking about just the general Draconic cards, I think most of them are pretty good in Dromai. I think Blaze Headlong was maybe not as impactful in Dromai as it would be in Fi, just because it needs to have already it asks you to have already played a red card in the turn in order to give it go again and 
that's not necessarily what Dromite wants. She just wants to have her red cards have go again in order to enable her dragons. She's not looking to play these long red card enabled combat chains like Phi was. I also think the rupture cards are sometimes a little bit awkward if you don't have a lot of Aether Ash Wings on the board. But of those, I still quite like Lava Burst being a zero for five and Breaking Point just because it's a one for five at rate, even without the rupture. And that's still a pretty good rate for the deck. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. You could just finish on a breaking point, even if you didn't get that four chain link. So one for five is just a very respectable rate. Yeah. So those are kind of how I view the her class cards and the Draconic cards. And then obviously, I don't think the context of generic cards changes very much for her, other than the fact that Red Sift is a card that you're way more happy to take than the other two heroes, just because it's a red card with go again that lets you fix your hands, where the other two classes don't necessarily care about red non-attack actions at all. So that's pretty much where I'm at on my evaluation of the card pool and Dromai at the moment. Shall we move on to Fi? Yeah, let's move on to the most fun hero. So Fi, I think, is definitely the simplest draft of the three heroes. He wants a critical mass of cheap go-again attacks to enable both his Searing Ember Blade and his hero power to return a Phoenix Flame. At the top of the list, I think, are the red We'll call them head jabs. They're the reds with three power and defend for two and have go again. There's actually three different versions of this card. There's there's Ronin Renegade, Brain with Cinder Claw, and Rising Resentment. Ronin Renegades just has no extra text on it. It's just literally three power, two block, go again, red, zero cost. It's quite good even without extra text because this is just one of your best combo starters or turn starters. Brand with Cinder Claw does the same thing but it has the upside of making your next attack a draconic attack so if you follow this up with a scar for scar or a trade-in from arsenal or even something like a red brother in arms it will still count as a draconic chain link for your fi ability and any other effects and then the third one rising resentment if it hits then you can banish a card for your hand and it will make it cost one less you can only banish a card that has lower cost than the number of draconic chain links you have. So if you start this as chain link one, you'll only be able to banish a zero cost, so you won't get the effect from this. But at worst, it's still the Ronin Renegade, where it's a three for zero with go again at the start of the chain. And if you play it later in the chain, sometimes that one resource discount can't matter. So Fi's main play pattern will be hopefully playing one of these zero cost three damage go again attacks, followed by the Ember Blade followed by potentially using his ability to get back a Phoenix Flame or something else. And then if he plays the Phoenix Flame, he can follow it up with a Rupture card. He can also just play multiple copies of these cheap go-again attacks and then use his hero power for free. Almost all of his turns are going to involve stringing together one, at least one attack, plus the Ember Blade, plus the plus a Phoenix Flame. Right, and I guess the reason why I like Fi so much is because... Going all the way back to the start of this, if we're looking to the heart of flesh and blood, it's very easy to decide what to do with Phi on basically any given turn, where you look at your hand and you see a bunch of two blocks that have three power, and you do the math, and you realize, oh, I should just not block because my hand presents way more damage on offense than it does on defense. And you say no blocks, you take your 10 damage and present back 15 and move on with your life. So it's not uncommon for games of five to be over in two to three turns and 
that's why I gravitated towards Phi so much in my early drafts, just because of that straightforward and linear game plan that is pretty easy and very consistent to pull off. On top of a lot of his cards not blocking for as much as they attack for, his Searing Ember Blade to get go again also requires you to attack with something else first, and then his Phoenix Flame returning is cheaper based on the more attacks he plays. So if you play three attacks, then you get to return that Phoenix Flame for free, which is zero dam- or zero cost for one free damage, basically. Right, and it's not a card you want to lead the combat chain with because it doesn't have any power when it's the first chain link. So while it is a fine way to start a chain link sometimes, it's never something you're happy to be doing. And then you mentioned this card when you were talking about Brand with Cinderclaw. Red Traden, or Traden in general, is a card that also has gone up a lot on my evaluations, as opposed to when I first was looking at this set. In Dromai, when it's played from Arsenal, it's just a red go-again attack, which is something that she wants. But being able to discard Phoenix Flames and get the value out of them either in Fi with his hero ability or with cards like Burn Away or Inflame later on in the chain link, that ability of discarding a card in order to draw another card is actually pretty good in these Draconic Heroes. Obviously, once again, that means it's at its weakest in a deck like Icelander, but I think it's a card that's very serviceable in Fi and Dromai, and especially the red version. Yeah. Red trade-in. When Phi, you can use it to make some of your bad hands more playable by just starting with it from Arsenal and discarding something to try to draw it to something that'll make your turn more functional. And it makes your good hands way better because if you can get three ch- Draconic Chain Links and activate Phi's ability to return the Phoenix Lane for free and then follow that up by playing this trade-in from Arsenal, discard that Phoenix Lane again and draw a card, you're essentially trading that Phoenix Lane for a real card because it's your trade-in still is three for zero with go again that you're just happy to be playing. And that can be really powerful, just trading in a Phoenix Lane for a, a random card. Yeah, absolutely. So, and there are even a lot of times where just a zero for three power attack at the end of a chain really helps you push through a good amount of damage. So there are lots of times where my opponent would be at pretty low life totals, obviously three or below is what it's at its best, but you look at the last card in your hand and you realize it's not really the best. It's not really what you want to be. Even after playing this Phoenix flame, ending a chain link with ending a combat chain with trade in discarding a mediocre card and hoping of finding a premium arsenal card is also something that has come up for me in my gameplay. So I think it's also worth noting and talking about that being said, the card's still not amazing and it's not something that I think is a card that I would be happy to first pick all the time in a pack, but I think is a lot stronger and should move up on pick orders than what it was initially given credit for. Yeah, the fact that you're pretty happy to have the first copy of it in both Phi and Dromai means that I think you can get away with picking it reasonably highly out of weak packs. And then the last thing I want to talk about in Phi, which I kind of alluded to in Dromai as well, which is these five power attacks. Five power is actually very difficult to block in this format, given the prevalence of two blocks in Draconic cards and the Ice cards. There were a lot of games where at the end of the game I was at two life and I have a three block in my hand. And I was thinking to myself, okay, 
As soon as my opponent attacks me with a 4 power card, I'll be able to cleanly block it with just my 3 block, take a damage, I'll live at 1, and I'll still have the rest of my hand in order to carry on the gameplay with. And then they wind up attacking me with a 5 power card, and I just have to give them both of my cards, have effectively no turn on my next turn, and never regain tempo from there. So the fact that these cards are both usually pretty difficult to block out, are very threatening at the end of the game, given that they're difficult to block out. And then particularly on a card like Breaking Point, having that ability to destroy all the cards in your opponent's arsenal is also very threatening as well when it's turned on. So I think five power attacks are a little bit better than we were given credit for. But also, like we said, when we were talking about our pack one, pick one, a card like Rebellious Rush, which is just a two for five go again, two for five is obviously nowhere near as good as zero for five or one for five and is... Not a card I'm super thrilled to be having in my deck, but like you said, I think one copy of Rebellious Rush is fine some of the time. I think one copy of Red Rebellious Rush is fine most of the time. So in the draft, how do you end up in Phi? I take a lot of cards that have power and say go again on them. Yeah, so basically, if you end up with a lot of the red go again cards that are draconic, then that's usually how you end up with Phi. You pick them out of medium packs or even reasonable packs over some other cards, and you just need to get that critical mass of zero and one cost red go again attacks, and that's how you end up with a solid fight deck. Right, and like you said, there's nine head jabs in this format, potentially even 12 if you're looking at a card like Lava Vein Loyalty. Yes, it doesn't get go again naturally until it's on chain like two or higher, but once you're there, it's actually a three power three block card that for zero that has go again. So there's just so many duplicative cards of every single one of these that it makes it the easiest to wind up in Phi, in my opinion. It's just so reasonable and likely that you're going to see some number of these effects, especially in red, in the first few picks of any pack or sequence, that it makes it very easy to pick them up and have a reasonable number of them, regardless of how you're drafting in the first pack. That makes sense. On top of that, there's even additional copies of these one cost and zero cost at rare that uh, have natural go again and at majestic. So there's just a lot of these effects. So moving on to the equipment, how do you value Dromai's equipment picks versus Fi's equipment picks? We didn't really talk about it in Dromai, but she has pretty premium equipment slots. And I think Fi's equipment is very solid, but I don't think it winds up being as powerful as Dromai's overall. Yeah, so we'll start with the chest. I think Sash of Sandakai, I think it is pretty reasonable in both of them. You are usually pretty happy to have it, and you'd rather have it over Quelling Robe, but if you do end up with Quelling Robe, it's not that bad. Instead, for the gloves, Phi has Heat Wave, which are pretty solid. On several turns, you can usually attack with two Phoenix Flames at the same turn, and sacrificing your heat wave on that turn is usually worth two damage. Whereas Dromai's gloves, Silken Form, have this really interesting ability where at instant speed, you can destroy Silken Form and destroy a target Ash you control into an Aether Ashwing, and it has Quell 1. So what's really cool about this piece of equipment is that you can activate its Quell ability, and since Quell reads, destroy this card at the beginning of the end phase, before that happens you can activate its instant speed ability to transform one of your ashes lying around into an Aether Ashwing, allowing you to generate both offensive and defensive value at the same time. Additionally, if you ever want to transform this Quell into an additional source of Arcane Barrier, 
you can do that at instant speed as well by just activating your silken form, turning one of your pieces of Ashwing to an Aether Ashwing, and then of course your Aether Ashwing is going to have a source of Arcane Barrier. So the fact that it has Quell, Pseudo Arcane Barrier, and gets value out of its activated ability after Quell is used on it is very, very strong and I think might be the best common piece of equipment in the set. Yeah, I think it has a pretty strong case for being 